0: Hey everyone, it's Matt Sewell. Thanks for tuning in. This is the PopeCast, the podcast about popes for those who like history, but aren't real crazy about history books. This week is episode 16, The Pope Who Outsmarted Napoleon. The pope we're talking about today was mild-mannered on the outside, but tough as nails on the inside. He went toe-to-toe with a tiny tyrant for 10 years and was imprisoned for six of them. Never wanted to let the church be bullied, he returned the papacy to the respect it deserved after decades of being drugged through the proverbial mud. This week, it's the 250th successor of St. Peter, the Pope who outsmarted Napoleon, servant of God, Pope Pius Seventh. A quick note before we start this week. Listeners of the PopeCast will notice, of course, that we hardly go in chronological order from Peter to Francis. Uh, we tend to jump around a bit, uh, sort of willy-nilly, but I promise there's some method to the madness. Uh, we started out, I think, by just covering some of the more popular popes, Leo the Great, Gregory the Great. did a three-episode series on the, the three popes that Protestants hold up as ammo for why papal infallibility is supposedly false. And lately, I think we've been cho- I've been choosing these popes because they bear particular significance to the the state that the church is currently in. But I'm always open to input, so if you'd like to supply your suggestion for who you think would be a good candidate for the next pope to cover on a future popecast, if there's a particular professor historian you think would be good to interview on a popecast, I'm always open to those. And I also do have plans to uh, start to branch out from popes themselves, perhaps start to cover some of the prominent churchmen, prominent figures of history that influenced the popes or who popes influenced. So if you have any of those suggestions or want to uh, just leave a comment, follow us there, uh, head over to patreon.com slash That's the best spot to uh, join the growing community, leave your thoughts on uh, what you'd like to see, what you like, what you don't like. Would love to chat with you there. Pope Pius VII was born Barnaba Chiaramonti in the Italian town of Cesena on August 14th, 1742. He was the youngest of four children from a family in lower Italian nobility, somewhere similar to a middle class family in today's language. Pius entered the Benedictine order at the local monastery at the age of 14 in 1756. Two years later, he took his first vows and assumed the name of Brother Gregory. He was ordained a priest in 1765, but not before, believe it or not. His mother, presumably after the death of his father, entered a Carmelite convent, and at some point afterward had a vision and foretold in the presence of her son, no less, that he would one day be elected Pope and would endure much suffering. No pressure. After becoming a priest, Pius taught as a professor at Benedictine monasteries in Parma and Rome, and was soon named the abbot, the head honcho of sorts, somewhat equivalent to a bishop of the Monastery of San Callisto in Rome, by family friend and some historians say relative, Pope Pius VI. Of course, this was met by accusations that Pius VI was playing favorites, but an investigation into his appointment proved that Father Gregory was a legitimate pick on his own merits. Pius VI continued to elevate his protege, making him bishop of the Italian Diocese of Tivoli in 1782, then moving him to the Diocese of Amola in 1785, and sending along a shiny red hat to boot, lifting him to the College of Cardinals. He served there as Cardinal Chiaramonte until his papal election in 1800. Even any mild history buff knows what was going on in Europe at the turn of the 19th century, right? The little corporal himself, Napoleon Bonaparte, was on the march through Europe, and in 1797, three years before Pius's election, invaded Italy and took Pius VI as prisoner, where he would eventually die. Thankfully, as Pius VII would write in a letter to the world's bishops, which I'll quote from again later, the timing of his predecessor's death was providential, to say the very least. Pius VII talks about the last years of the 1700s with relative horror. Cardinals expelled from their diocese, some imprisoned, some hunted for their lives. Stripped of their possessions and some even forced to cross icy waters in the middle of winter to avoid death. Should the Pope have died during those years, there was no hope of the Red Hats gathering to elect a successor. But alas, recounts Pius VII, quote, Who would have dared at that time, with our affairs assailed and almost destroyed, to hope on the basis of human plans and help for what has actually happened by the special kindness of God. Before he died, Pius VI established the mode of holding the elections of his successors and most of Italy was restored to peace. All arrangements were made for the cardinals to meet in Venice to vote under the protection of Francis, apostolic king of Hungary, illustrious king of Bohemia and emperor-elect of the Romans. Pius VII was elected in Venice in a secret conclave on March fourteenth, 1800. And so began what's ended up being the sixth longest papacy in history, not counting that of St. Peter, at 23 years, 5 months, and 7 days. Given that the cardinals were more or less exiled, unbelievably but fitting with Pius's humble and monkish preference for living, Pius VII's coronation ceremony saw a papier-mâché tiara being placed on the new pope's head. The traditional bejeweled papal tiara, of course, had been seized by Napoleon. Suffice it to say, the changeover between Pius VI and Pius VII was a harrowing time in which the papacy was nearly lost. The full story is well worth telling, but is a story for another day. Pius VII was able to get along relatively well with Napoleon for his first few years in office, but things began to get really nasty around the time of the emperor's coronation at the hands of the pope himself at Paris's Notre-Dame Cathedral, In 1804. And here I'll give one large caveat. It's worth noting that the times in which Pius VII was forced to operate downright sucked. Napoleon, aside from naming himself, quote unquote, consul for life, would one moment honor the church as, quote, the only religion that can make a stable community happy and establish the foundations of good government, end quote, and then in the next moment declare Catholic clergy employees of the state so he could more easily control the church from the top. In short, Napoleon was a man of the world, lusting for power however he could get it, and he knew that playing nice with the church for a while could curry the favor of the 20-some million French Catholics whose hearts he would need to win in order to rule without constant uprising. So when I say that 1800-1804 to was relatively calm, it really says something about the decade that followed. Thankfully for the church, Pius VII was no ordinary pope. On the outside, he appeared to be nothing more than a meek and holy monk, but there was a reason he was a favorite of his predecessor. Pius VII possessed an uncanny ability to match Napoleon at every turn, which he would do right up until Napoleon's final exile in 1815. It started with the immediate appointment of the unassuming deacon Ercole Consalve to be his cardinal secretary of state and his closest confidant for all 23 years in office. Cardinal Consalvi has gone down in history as one of the greatest statesmen, of the 19th century, inside or outside of the church, and was the one who is said to have laughed in reply to Napoleon at one point when the emperor threatened to destroy the church. Consalvi said, If in 1800 years we clergy have failed to destroy the church, do you really think that you'll be able to do it? Oh, love that line. But back to Napoleon's coronation the emperor was clearly jealous of the public acclaim the humble pope received when he arrived in Paris. It was the emperor's party, after all. Napoleon soon descended into petty tyranny, which was, as H.W. Crocker III reports in his book Triumph, quote, sometimes enlightened, often not, end quote. Napoleon asserted his so-called authority over church matters through cardinals, bishops, and priests that annoyed him in jail and was all the while trying to conquer everyone from England in the West to Russia in the East. Pius VII's response to all this was a calm demeanor and Though the history books don't include this, I think, lots of eye rolls and disbelieving chuckles. He refused to let Napoleon close papal ports to his enemies, the Anglicans and the Eastern Orthodox, reminding him in his actions that, as Crocker recounts, quote, the church would have no enemies chosen for it by an emperor, end quote. After all, emperors come and go, but the papacy endures. None too pleased, of course, Napoleon marched on Rome and captured Pius VII, imprisoning him for the next six years. 1808 to 1814. Pius, in keeping with his personality, simply treated his new digs like he was back in the monastery, and meanwhile, continued to refuse Napoleon's demands. In fact, in 1811, while saying Mass on the Feast of the Assumption, August 15th, the day after his birthday, interestingly enough, it's said that Pius fell into a trance-like state and literally began levitating and moving toward the altar. The French guards next to him were probably, understandably, wetting themselves. Pius was released in 1814, thanks to Italian demands following defeat of Napoleon, and little more than a year later, with a final exile to the Isle of St. Helena, Pius was free of the imperial nuisance forever. However, showing the mercy of Christ himself, Pius not only offered protection to Napoleon's family, but sent the disgraced despot a personal chaplain to minister to him until the end of his days. Remarkably, with Napoleon gone, Pius wasn't even two-thirds of the way through his papacy, and he still had plenty of energy left in him. In 1814, he restored the Jesuit order in the Universal Church, which had been suppressed four decades prior. He condemned the slave trade several times over, and he created his second batch of new American dioceses. In 1808, he had created the dioceses of Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Bardstown, which would later be Louisville, and he followed that with the creation of dioceses in Charleston and Richmond in 1820 and Cincinnati in 1821. Pius was a staunch opponent of Freemasonry, a great patron of artists and ornate architecture and could speak four languages fluently. Pius VII fell and broke his hip in the summer of 1823 and never fully recovered. He died a month later, at age 81, revered and loved as a spiritual authority and father the church desperately needed. Following his death, his closest friend, Cardinal Consalvi, commissioned a monument to Pius to be placed in St. Peter's Basilica. Sculpted over the course of eight years, by the Danish artist Bertel Thorvaldsen, the only Protestant artist at the time in St. Peter's. It's still able to be seen today, actually, by pilgrims to St. Peter's on the east wall of the Clementine Chapel. Pius VII has the title Servant of God before his name now because his cause for canonization remains open. Interestingly enough, it was in 2007, at the hands of Pope Benedict XVI, that Pius' cause for beatification was approved. In late 2018, just a couple months ago, the Bishop of Savona announced that the cause is continuing to move forward into the investigation stage following all the documentation of Pius' life being gathered for study. Who knows? Only a few more years and we might be calling this pope blessed or even saint Pius Seventh. Lord knows he's worthy of it. So to close out our chapter on Pius Seventh, as we always do, we close this podcast whenever possible with a written passage from the episode's subject, in this case, totally unrelated to Pius VII's decade long spat with Napoleon, here's a segment from an encyclical letter we mentioned earlier, one that the Pope wrote to the world's bishops in 1800, entitled, Diu translated, On a Return to Gospel Principles. Here's the line While you must care for the whole flock over which the Holy Spirit has placed you as bishop, the watchfulness, eagerness, and effort of your fatherly love and benevolence is demanded in particular by boys and young men. Christ, by example and statement, has particularly entrusted these to us. And the enemies of private property and states who are striving to confound all laws divine and human hope to effect their wicked plans chiefly by corrupting their young minds. For they are aware that the young are like soft wax and can easily be drawn in any direction, bent and molded, and that they firmly retain a form once they have received it, and it has been hardened by advancing years. Then they will reject a different form. Hence the well worn proverb from Scripture A young man will not depart from his way, even when he has grown old. End quote. I chose that for this week given the times the Catholic Church and the wider world are currently facing. It should be no surprise, anybody who doesn't think so has been living under a rock, that the world faces a crisis of authentic masculinity, where men rise up to meet their God given duty and responsibility of defending the vulnerable, upholding the banner of truth, and dying for those to themselves and for others, for those they've sworn to protect. Just as it was in Pius the Seventh day, let us pray that bishops and priests not only give a good example of being holy men, but seek out and encourage the next generation of priests, bishops, and lay Catholics, and help form them from an early age to guide the church out of its most turbulent times. Well, that's it for this week. We just received John's question, one of our patrons, uh, on the dubia. So anybody who's uh, plugged in even a little bit to the Catholic world in the last couple of years will know what that means. So we'll answer that question at the end of the next podcast here in a week or two. But if you're a new listener, an old listener, like what you hear, please, if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast at iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. It's on Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, all those places. Even a short review helps a great deal. Uh, please also tell your friends. The only way that uh, podcasts, in addition to being reviewed, are uh, heard by more people is if people share them. So we'd really love that if you tell your friends, uh, hey, this is great, new, don't want to put words in your mouth, but hey, there's this great new podcast. It's only, you know, 10, 15 minutes an episode, uh, but that ensures more folks just like you can find and learn about the Popes of the Church. Also, if you're enjoying the Popecast, I mentioned at the beginning, want to ensure we can keep turning these out, please visit patreon.com slash Matt At the very least, If you don't want to become a patron, that's totally fine. Just follow us. You can join the community there, um, get some of the public posts. Uh, But for a buck or two an episode, you can get early access to each PopeCast episode a day before they're released to everybody else, plus access to other sweet patron-only benefits. Uh, I'm going to record an audiobook soon, uh, audio encyclical, I guess, technically, of Pope Pius VII's. Uh, a whole document. It's a pretty short one, uh, but an audiobook for your enjoyment, for patrons' enjoyment. So that's patreon.com slash M-A-T-T-S-E-W-E-L-L, patreon.com slash Matt And lastly, for more great papal content, uh, daily quotes, feast day bios, and then great lines about great saints by popes. So today was St. Thomas Aquinas for one example. Uh, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at The Pope Cast. So that's it for this week. As we exit... Let us ask, as we do every week, we cover a saintly pope for the intercession of our not-quite-sainted pontiff, but I think it's probably safe to ask for his prayers. We might also strive to live a life of humble and heroic, quiet virtue, and defend those who most need it. So, Pope Pius VII, servant of God, pray for us. Until next time.